Well, what a full morning. You know, something interesting happens when we return to those simple spiritual concepts that sometimes are so familiar to Christendom and the things that we sit around and we talk about. We, we think about what Christianity is and we, we come to church on Easter Sunday and the, the story of the cross is so familiar. When my wife was saved, which happened after, uh, after we were engaged, actually, I, I found out in the middle of our engagement that the woman I wanted to spend my entire life with, I wasn't on track to spend the rest of eternity with. I remember Michelle's salvation experience when she was familiar with the cross, the story of Jesus' resurrection, the story about how a man lived on earth a perfect life, was incorruptible, had no sin, and still was executed, persecuted, and crucified on a cross. That he died, not as a martyr, but he died. He was lowered into the ground, he was put inside of a tomb, and on three days he resurrected. The story is so familiar, in fact, that my wife already knew that this Jesus character had died and came back to life. I remember when she was saved, she said, I realized that that death was for me. There's meaning and significance inside of that. Sometimes we uh, come to church with the expectation that that we're going to tap into some unheard or unknown truth, that we're going to be profoundly overwhelmed or overcome with, with uh, the realities of what the Bible has to say. And it's true. I, I myself, I enjoy reading, and um, I've spent a lot of time over the past couple of weeks reading some stuffy books. I think some people would call them stuffy books. And um, digging deep into what actually takes place at the cross. What, what is the doctrine of mortification? How does atonement actually work? And it, it's so much fun. But the more time I've spent doing this, the more time I've actually realized that it's the simple truths that give us the most depth of experience with God. Sometimes when we spend time in church, we get caught up in what's familiar to us. I wouldn't say that churches have gotten caught up in teaching what we would most likely refer to as moralistic teachings. That, that is teaching that is uh, pointing towards how to live a good life or how to be a good person, so much as we've avoided the simple and familiar principles that the Bible has given to us that has actually robbed us of it having a relationship with God. We've gravitated towards moralistic principles, and I would even, some of the Christians that I've met who have been uh, most faithful have gravitated to such moralistic principles that their understanding of their relationship with God is based on their own behavior. One of those fundamental principles that we establish in Christ is simply the work of the cross. What is the cross? What was accomplished on it? Who was it accomplished for? What does it mean? Most people are confident that they understand the reason for the necessity of the cross in fulfilling God's love, a holy love that is needed to judge sin and restore a relationship with God's creation unto Himself. But... Do we really spend time enjoying the simple message of the gospel? Think about it this way. 
It's common to walk around with feelings of guilt, with a, with a concept of chastisement from God. Let me give you one just kind of idea, just kind of pull this together so that you can see what I mean by basic fundamental principle and how it actually has an impact in our walk with Christ. On Wednesday nights, we have a discipleship group. We meet here in the sanctuary every Wednesday at 6, and we're going over these simple practices. And over the past year and a half, we've actually come a long way. We've developed beyond just looking at what does it mean to walk as a Christian, to be a Christian and and interact with the world around us. And now we're looking at what does it mean to practice our faith, to grow up and to be a practicing Christian, somebody who is able to have an experience of their own, not needing to come to church to the point that they can be fed what the Word of God tells them, but instead that they would actually leave, they would be able to feed themselves And then they'd be able to come to church and be a part of the community of God. For the past four weeks that we've been teaching this lesson, we've been talking about forgiveness. Does that seem like a beefed up, big spiritual concept? Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? I mean, this is one of those things that... Even somebody who hasn't been raised in church, maybe that's never even gone to church, someone that's maybe never even opened the Bible knows Christianity gives you some moral principle that it is good to forgive people. And still, we've spent four weeks talking about forgiveness. It wasn't planned that way. This, this was supposed to be a quick study. But our conversation has had so much depth and so much wealth to it. Forgiveness is such an amazing concept when we look at it. This simple thing actually begins to develop into what does it mean to live and practice as a Christian. Let me remind you that the issue of walking around with feelings of guilt is fundamentally in contradiction to the cross. It undermines what has been accomplished in the cross because the cross is more than a picture of the penalty being paid. It is a picture of forgiveness and restoration. John Stott says, Just so long as a person lives under the shadow of real, unacknowledged, and unexplained guilt, he cannot accept himself. He will continue to hate himself and suffer the inevitable consequences of self-hatred. But the moment that he begins to accept his guilt and his sinfulness, the possibility of radical reformation opens up, and with this, a new freedom of self-respect and peace. In understanding the cross, we do more than just understand the nature of God. We accomplish more for ourselves than our own knowledge of who he is. We get a picture of these huge concepts of who we are to him and accepting what he has offered us. This is the reason that Jesus taught whenever he had his earthly ministry. Jesus didn't come to the earth and just to live a perfect life, but he spent time in ministry reaching out to those around him. One of the basic, fundamental principles that Jesus taught on was what is the kingdom of heaven? He gives us a vision of what God is doing for us. He gives us an understanding of God's holy love, and this vision of God's holy love delivers us from characters of him. We picture Christ, or in God, neither as an indulgent God who compromises his holiness in order to spare or spoil us, nor as a harsh and vindictive God. In understanding what Jesus taught in the kingdom of heaven, we actually begin to understand who this God is. 
There's a reason that Jesus teaches on the kingdom of heaven during his earthly ministry. He does so to shake the hard and set painfully established religious zealots of his day. He wants us to shake off the understanding that we come to church with. He wants us to shake off these moralistic principles that start to tell us this is what it means to be a Christian. And he wants us to realize that what Christ is actually inviting us to has nothing to do at all with being a good person. It has to do with having a relationship with God. A relationship that we get to walk in and experience. A relationship that we then get to share with other believers because they are experiencing it at the same level that we are. With that said, I think we should, before we open our Bible, our text this morning will come from Matthew chapter, two, chapter 22. I'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 if you want to turn there. But I would ask first that we would just take a moment this morning to consider why Jesus taught these simple principles to a Jewish lineage and heritage that thought they knew everything. There's a possibility that we've come to church this morning as, familiar, as a familiar face, understanding that God has done simply the most beautiful work He could have possibly ever done by putting His Son on the cross. And we've never actually taken the time to understand what that means to us. This morning, before we turn to our text, I'm going to pray. And when I pray, I'm going to ask God that He would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be able to behold the wonderful truth found in His law. That comes from Psalm 119, 18. That God would open our hearts, that He would shave off the preconceived notions that we have of who He is, and that He would reveal to us through His Word who He actually is. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. After I pray, we will read. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning, for the time of worship that we had, for the, uh, the beautiful sacrifice and uh, dedication of voices that have come together to worship you and to glorify you. Lord, now as we turn to you as your people, Lord, we turn to you with hearts that are eager to hear from you. Lord, I pray that as we open up to your word, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the awesome truth of your law. God, I pray that you would help to lead us into discovery of you. Not that we find you, but that you've already pursued us. God, I'm thankful for your pursuit. And God, I pray that I would be ready to turn to you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. 
Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus taught in parables, not for the reason to confuse us or to give us fancy pictures that we could look at, simply so that we would understand a heavenly concept using earthly images. And so he gives us this picture to the disciples. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a wedding feast that a father threw for his son. How is that? Well, if you know anything about biblical history, you know that the Jews are pretty significant to the Bible. Jesus was a Jew, and before that, and all of the Old Testament, everything leading up to the book of Matthew is pointing to God's providence and his, uh, the way that he's chosen the, the nation of Israel. He's established them, he, he's given them promises, and he's raised them up to this point. And all of these people who have grown up with this heritage, this understanding of what God's going to do, all of these, even prophecies that pointed to the day that Jesus would be slain on the cross, up to this point, thought they knew it all. Christians are sometimes a lot like that. We think we know it all. The wedding feast has been prepared. The feast does, does not come as a surprise because if you look in the Old Testament, very evidently we knew that these preparations were being made. We've received our invitations and we know that the day of Christ is coming. In Jewish history before Jesus, the people of Israel have all been pointing to this feasting day. Still, the cross, a punishment reserved for the vilest of men in the ancient world, seems an unworthy place for the God-man to be slain. John Stott remarks in The Cross of Christ, Where faith sees glory, unbelief sees only disgrace. What was foolishness to the Greeks and continues to be to the modern intellectuals who trust in their own wisdom is nevertheless the wisdom of God. We see the rejection of Christ by Israel. In this picture, this parable, the, the servant of God goes out and he declares to those who have been invited to this feast, Come, the feast is ready. My ox have been slain. My cattle have been slain. Come, this is, the, this is what we've been waiting for. Come and take part of this feast. But the people who were invited, it says that they're found unworthy. They don't come. They don't come. They refuse. This is the rejection of Israel of the slain lamb that has been promised to them. We're given two pictures here. What, were they, what, what reasons do they give that they did not come? First, that they went to their farm. And the other one went to his business. These religious know-it-alls thought that they didn't need what was done on the cross. They didn't need this wedding feast. In fact, they were too preoccupied with other things that took up their time. One that went to his farm goes to take care of everything that he has. Everything that's already given to him, he goes to take care of it. And then the one that goes to his business 
Obviously, if he's not caring for what he has, he's caring for what he wants to have someday. Our proud hearts rebel against what God gives us. When we look at the cross, even these religious folks who had been raised up in the faith, they knew what was coming. When they look at the cross, they reject it. This isn't a picture just of the nation of Israel, but this is a picture of the whole world. When we hear of the need that we have for a Savior, our proud hearts rebel because we want to say that there's something in us that deserves God. There's a reason He's been pursuing you. And there is, but the only reason is that He loves you. He doesn't love you because you're great. He doesn't love you because you're special. He loves you because you're special to Him. Not that there's anything in you worthy of Him pursuing you. Stott, again, says, Our proud hearts rebel against the cross. We cannot bear to acknowledge either the seriousness of our sin and the guilt of our utter indebtedness to the cross. Surely, we say, there must be something we can do or at least contribute in order to make amends. If not, we often give the impression that we would rather suffer our own punishment than the humiliation of seeing God through Christ bear bear it in our place. The rejection of Israel, in fact, the rejection of the whole world today, doesn't come from a place of simply wanting to live a depraved life. It comes from a place of pride. When I hear people reject the good news that Jesus brought to this world, I do not hear people reject redemption. I do not hear people reject a relationship with God. I do not hear people say that they don't want everything that Christ offers us in the cross. What I hear people reject is admitting that they're the problem. They say, I want to be saved so that I can experience all of this. And we ask, what do you want to be saved from? Because we don't want to admit that the reason I need saved is because I have a problem. The proud human heart is there revealed in our rejection of Christ. We insist on paying what we have done. We cannot stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing somebody else to pay it for us. The notion that somebody else should be, should be God himself is just too much to take. We would rather perish than repent, rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves. We quickly run to the things that cannot provide. We reject the words of Samuel the prophet, writing, You have committed this evil, yet do not turn aside from, the fall, aside from following your Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after the futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. I love that passage from Samuel. When, when at the beginning, before the king, or the time in Jewish history where the kings are established, first God has a system of Judges who would come in and essentially, if you ever read the book of Judges, it's the most depressing book in the entire Bible because here's what happens. People do awful things. They fall away from God. A judge comes in, restores the people. They repent. God delivers them. And then some 60 times this happens. People do awful things again over and over. Samuel's the last judge. He comes as a prophet. And he delivers the people from their enemies, the Philistines, And 
the people say, Samuel, you're doing so great. Appoint for us a king so we can be like all the other nations around us. Let us be like them. Give us a king. And Samuel says, this isn't actually what you need. You don't want a king. You already have a king. You have a special relationship with God. Your king is in heaven. You don't need a king like all of these other countries. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to look different. And so he struggles with this, but he goes to God, and God says, go ahead and give them what they want. And so Samuel appoints Saul, the first king of Israel. And in telling the people, he tells them, because you've asked for a king, you've sinned. And God's given this to you. And his encouragement to them is, now that you've done this, run to God. Just because you have a king like all of these other nations, don't run anywhere else but the Lord. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. At the core of everything is that we would love God. At the the core of our salvation is that we would develop a love for God. He already loves you. He's showing you how to love Him. What saves a person is that they're able to love God. And, And this is the encouragement that Samuel gives the people of Israel when Saul was appointed king. Still though... Those who aren't preoccupied, they're, they're first those who uh, turn to their fields so that they can take care of what they have. There's those that go to their business to take care of the things that they don't have yet, but they surely want. And then there are those who treat the servants who were sent to them shamefully. And this, I think, clearly points to the persecution of the church during the first century. When the messengers who were given the message of the good news... Go to the nation of Israel, similar to the way that Samuel had previously in years past, to tell them the good news of what God had done for them. We saw the early church, we saw martyrs, we saw people start to die. Even looking in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, what's a warning that he gives the people of Israel? But he tells them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You will receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I'm worried this morning I'm getting a little too stuck in my notes and and maybe I'm not really connecting where all of this is going. The warning that Stephen gave to the nation of Israel was that they thought they knew it all and they didn't. They were so caught up in understanding all of the prescribed notions that, that went with the law, understanding everything that God had given to them so far, everything that actually explained how corrupted and imperfect they were, that they were unable to see the fulfillment of the law in executing Jesus. You stiff-necked people. You're always grieving the Holy Spirit. You think you know God, but you're running away from Him. Instead of running to God, you know what you're running to? You're running to the law. Instead of looking for a Savior, you're trying to save yourself. Instead of being a Christian in community with one another, you're trying to be righteous and holy before man. This is the same, it's not a new problem. It's the same problem that the Jews had whenever Jesus first came and they were unable to see what Christ had done for them. 
This is the problem that Christians have today. In fact, the most religious people that I know who come to church, I think more often than not, instead of running to a relationship with God, are running to the law. Saved by grace. And our pride leaves us running back to the law. That we would save ourselves. The entire point of Jewish history points to the fact that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. The revelation of the law given to us by God, it actually enhances our own conviction because it shows us all of the places that we fail. Jesus comes to the world and he gives us further teaching on these things and he expounds on what we had read in the law. You've heard that it was said not to murder your brother. I say to you, anyone that hates his brother has already murdered him in his heart. Jesus not only explains this, but he shows us just how penetrated we are with sin. When we look at the cross and we look at the anguish of Christ, what we actually see is how awful sin is. The reason we turn our eyes away from it is because our pride this whole time has been holding us back, has been teaching us we have some ability inside of us to be what one would call a good person, that that would save us. This isn't the case. The message of the gospel isn't that there's this chosen group who are uh, raised up in the faith so that they can spout off Bible verses anytime that they want and they can be super knowledgeable about all these stuffy things that I mentioned earlier. It's that they can have a relationship with Christ. See that those that thought they knew everything weren't the ones who were able to call. Instead, they were the ones that were preoccupied. And so God, the Father, tells His servant, Now that they have been found unworthy to come to the feast, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. That's in verse 9. And those servants went out and into the roads and they gathered all whom they would found, both good and bad. Both good and bad. This invitation that God gives us is extended to everybody and has nothing to do with who you are, what you've done, how you failed, or anything to do with your past or anything even to do in your future. This is what's so amazing about the invitation that Christ is giving us. It doesn't have anything to do with you at all. It has everything to do with what He's already done for you. He's given you the invitation. There was this radical teaching that Christ was giving us that the whole world was going to be blessed through the family of Abraham. This wasn't anything new to the Jews when they received it. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham is that he will make a great nation and he will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, the Jews should have known if they weren't stiff-necked, if they weren't grieving the Holy Spirit, if they didn't think that they knew everything. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God's promise that actually establishes them was that the entire world would be blessed through them. Isaiah the prophet writes, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. What is the good news about this invitation is that it is For everybody, bad and good. The servants go to the highways and the byways. They're inviting everyone who could hear because those who thought they knew it all were not worthy. 
Men and women of moral sensitivity have always been perplexed by the seeming injustice of God's providence. How is it possible that a bad person could know and have a relationship with God? How is that possible? This is far from being a modern problem. Ever since Abraham, indignant that God intended the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to kill the righteous with the wicked, uttered his anguishing cry, Will not the judge of this earth do right? The characters and the authors of the Bible have struggled with this question. Listen, God does not extend his invitation only to those who are qualified by their goodness. How can this be? It is because God has the ability to change people. Anyone who rejects the reality that God has the ability to change people and relies on their personal goodness ultimately rejects the gospel of Christ. They are no different than the religious elite who stood and stoned Stephen, who shouted, crucify him, when Jesus was put up with the, with the murderer Barabbas. God saves all people, whether good or bad. The invitation that he's given to the world is for anyone who would come to him. The servants go out to the highways and byways for anyone that they can find, inviting them to the wedding feast. So what is this picture of the the? The kingdom of heaven that's going to be established, this wedding feast that we look forward to, this banquet and this time of celebration. What is this picture that he's giving us when we look at chapter, uh, verse 11? We find that the guests have all been gathered, that the kingdom of heaven's been joined together. Those people who are actually worthy come and they are starting to celebrate what Christ has given to them. We walk up to someone. And he says, friend, this is verse 12. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? Even those of us that have heard the simple message that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. May still find ourselves relying on something that will not give us a ticket to heaven. At the wedding feast, the king finds someone without a wedding garment. And what's the consequence of being in this place without the wedding garment, a garment that was provided for a person that would uh, give them the ability to be a part of the festivities? The king says to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in the place that that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's not able to get in on his own merit. If you think of the wedding garment as what we clothe ourselves with, this is a pretty easy illustration, right? If we clothe ourselves in the goodness that we think that we have, we will be found in heaven and cast out into the outer darkness like this friend. Loved ones, many of us, when hearing the good news, what we refer to as the gospel, 
find ourselves anxious to avoid the pain of a wholehearted commitment to Christ. We search for a convenient subterfuge, and we either leave the decision to somebody else to opt for a half-hearted compromise to seek and to honor Jesus in the wrong ways. We might even participate in church looking at Jesus as a teacher instead of regarding Him as Lord. We might make a public affirmation of our loyalty while at the same time denying Christ in our hearts. Identifying with Jesus is more than agreeing with Him on the morals that He taught. It's more than agreeing to live as He commanded us to live. Identifying with Christ is saying, I am nothing without you, and in you I am whole. Who I am is defined by you because you are in me and I am secure in you. The judgment of God is certain. It is seen in the cross. As Brenner put it, where the idea of the wrath of God is ignored, there also there will be no understanding of the central conception of, of the gospel, the uniqueness of the revelation in the mediator. Similarly, only he who knows the greatness of the wrath will be mastered by the greatness of his mercy. When we look at the cross and, and we see what Christ went through, we begin to understand that God's love and his pursuit of us came at a cost. It wasn't at a cost that he could pursue us so that he would be able to have this relationship with us it was a cost that we earned on our own. The hymn writer says, it was my sin that held him there. Not nails, it was me. God's satisfaction of the penalty of sin that all of us deserve was done in such a way that we would have a relationship with him taking everything that we owe as a consequence of sin in this world, everything that is owed to this friend who tries to come to the wedding feast with no garment. I, and I don't know why, I don't know if you picked up on this, but one of the things that stands out to me is that those who will be at the wedding feast without the garment are going to be the, the ones who, who look at Jesus as a teacher instead of as the Lord. Those who say, I agree, this is how to be a good person. And so I'm going to try to live my life that way. But they don't surrender all of themselves to God. They don't give up everything that they have to God because they want a relationship with Him. Some of you have probably heard this message before. God loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. That's why we celebrate the risen Lord. Verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. This morning, I ask a simple question. Wouldn't it be great if instead of learning how to be a good person, you just learned how to walk with God? Wouldn't it be great if instead of trying to figure out how to be moral, What's right and what's wrong? You just woke up in the morning and you were able to experience God's presence in your life. The Bible teaches us that if that is our priority, all those moral things, all those principled things, what does all of this mean? 
it'll actually be explained for us. God has the ability to change people, good, bad, and, and morally agnostic. If we'll just look at him as more than a teacher. That's the invitation I want to give to you this morning. That you'd be challenged to instead of looking at church as a place to learn what's right and wrong, to look at a place to learn how to walk with God. And better yet, if you're already an expert at that, to show somebody how to walk with God. This morning, we've got a special treat. 